Uh, I don't always plan things very far ahead, but three and a, a little over three years ago, the members of the congregation know that I had uh, heart surgery up at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, when I finished that, uh, they put me on a strict uh, medical regime and asked me to come back each year for an annual review. The annual review I kept the first year, but it takes a long time to get an appointment, and uh, it's a little bothersome to go all the way up there for it, and so I missed it the last two years. And then I got a little flare-up with uh, my heart the other day, and uh, uh, so some people wanted me to go and keep my checkup uh, with the clinic. It takes so long to get the appointment that I use that as the excuse, so one of the members of the staff here and I were going over to Asheville for lunch and to see someone in the hospital, and I went by my house to get something that I'd forgotten, and at my house was Maury Scobie and George Bergman. And uh, they said we, Maury had packed my suitcase and George Bergen was the enforcer. Uh, he said, uh, you're going to the airport to catch an airplane. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, we have an appointment at 8 o'clock in the morning for you at the Mayo Clinic, and uh, we're instructed to get you there. Now, I can argue with Maury, but it's not wise to argue with George. <laughs> so I, I went on and uh, got up there, but all the time I was worried about a football game that was going to be played on Friday that I wanted very much to see. And uh, uh, when I checked in the uh, Kaler Hotel at night, I couldn't get anything off my mind except I wanted to get out of there and get on back home. And when I got through Chicago, hair was crowded and you couldn't get any airplanes to, you know, the controllers, they don't have enough of them, so they make everybody wait. And uh, I thought, well, this isn't going to do. And then I remembered that I was to speak at the School of the Ozarks. Their president out there is a lot like I am. He does things very quickly. And uh, so he, they have a school of aviation. And uh, he said to me if I needed any help uh, in flying a few years ago to call him and uh, that he would take care of it. So I called him from my hospital room <laughs> the next day at Mayo waiting to take a, a stress test. And I said, look, i got a football game I want to go to tonight and <laughs> uh, tomorrow, and, and uh, I want to get to it. And the doctor had put me in the hospital, and he was mad at me because I wasn't staying long enough, and uh, I said, look, get me through the stress test, and he did, and lectured me on my medicine and my exercise and rest, and all I could think about was a ball game, and uh, so when I got out of there, they sent an airplane from Missouri up to Minnesota and picked us up. My wife had got scared in the meantime and had flown up there, and uh, so they flew us back to, uh, to the Asheville Airport, which isn't far from Hendersonville. And uh, uh, one of our elders was out there to meet us, and so we went over to Hendersonville, and I got another heart stress test uh, in that uh, ball game that was played uh, at Hendersonville. In fact, Coach Carlton gave me the, <laughs> the football. <laughs> uh, Owen won this game 29-28. to uh, now, I, I led devotions before the Reynolds game, and we got beat. And I led devotions before the game this Friday night. He told me he'd just appreciate me praying for him from now on, but <laughs> he thinks I've got the last rites mixed up with the devotion. So, so uh, 
I'm not leading devotions down, just praying for the ball club. But I'm very proud of that football, very thankful for it, very glad that uh, the fellas pulled that one uh, out. And then the next morning, the pilot, when I went back to the airport to go out for the 75th anniversary of the School of the Ozark, uh, he was talking about the football game when we got out there the next morning. We went and uh, spoke in the service there, and then they took me to see my folks over in Texas, and then we came back uh, from Dallas. It was a thrill right to the minute. My drinking brother Melvin took me to the airport, and the cops stopped us. We went through a red light, and uh, <laughs> but we made the airplane, and we got on home. So uh, that's uh, sort of the story of part of what happened last week. I can't wait to see what's going to happen this week. <laughs> but it was very fast time. Our scripture lesson is taken from the book of Nehemiah. And uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's on page 444 in the New International Version. Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, when I was in the citadel at Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. Remember that in 583 they had been taken into exile. They said to, to me, those who survived this, the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. I confess that the sins we Israelites have committed, including myself and my father's house, that we have committed against you, we have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commandments, the decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commandments, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them back to the place I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the people of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king in the month of Niacin, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes. When wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. 
I had not been sad before in his presence. And so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are you not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should not my face look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the king of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. And so I set a time. And I also said, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter for, to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timbers to make the beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Amen. May God bless to us an understanding and a lesson from this part of his word. Our Heavenly Father, you have been so wonderfully good to us that there is no way we could ever repay all of that goodness. But we are thankful that you give us the dignity and the joy of sharing in the expansion of your kingdom, as Hicks has already told us, by submitting our substance to you and asking you to take it and to bless it and to direct that its use may be wisely and well uh, made for the advancement of your kingdom. We thank you for Christian schools. We thank you for missionaries. We thank you for hospitals. We thank you for those who work in hard and difficult places who are supported with these offerings, for people that are helped and healed for the glory of Jesus. Now use these gifts which we bring this day to accomplish purposes like that and more. And also use our lives. Help them to be more submitted to thee and dedicated to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This week on our way back through to the airport in Dallas, we stopped in Greenville and saw the minister of a Presbyterian church there, Sam McGinn, who used to be a student, one of our helpers here. He had some of the people of his church meet early that morning with us, and one of them was North Peak Surgeon, a very inspiring Christian man. And he gave me this to bring home. He gave it to me because it's a true and authentic photograph. It's just been blown up. But it's a photograph taken by the father of a high school football player in Texas. The father went home after a championship ball game. Now, if you could see this, you will see that the boy in white, number 52, has his head buried in the shoulder pads of the boy in a dark blue jersey. He is crying. 
There is blood on this thigh pad to show something of the ferocity of that ball game. This is what the father wrote. It was a beautiful day in Dallas. It was warm and clear, and the high school football game was over, and our team had won. In all the years of my watching football, this game had been the most exciting. It had been played like life. Triumphs and mistakes, victory and disappointment, challenge after challenge, met with renewed strength and determination. Young men on both sides had played their hearts out. Both players and coaches had tasted victory and defeat several times during that three-hour contest. One side needed only a victory that day to be the conference champion, but it was not to be. The final score was a 7-3 upset. The sound was still ringing in my ears. The last nine seconds were being counted off by the fans, and now it was over. And the victorious players and coaches and students and parents and fans covered the playing field, screaming with excitement. And the other side was stunned in quiet disbelief. And then I saw a remarkable thing take place, something that's unlike the world around us in television and movies and newspapers. I saw two young men, one in blue and one in white, both had their heads buried in each other's shoulder pads. Both were on their knees, grasping hands on the 20-yard line where the last desperate play had failed to produce a victory. I watched it for several seconds. Then I took my camera and snapped a picture. Blood covered the thigh pads of one, a result of a battle between these two young men that had been waged against each other all that afternoon. The one in blue was the nose guard, who over and over had pursued the ball carrier. The other was the center, who had blocked his pursuit all afternoon. But now it was different. The player in white was quietly exhorting the player in blue, who was sobbing in defeat. I later found out that he asked him to look at the loss as God saw it, as a valuable lesson. He pointed out that his team had lost games too, and yet God was teaching them both how to handle hard times. And he asked him to go home and to pray and to read the Bible and to ask God to reveal the purpose for this defeat. I'm sure he also prayed that God would make him humble in victory. I stood there as they literally hugged each other. And the player in blue ran to his bus, still sobbing, and yet hurting a little less. And the player in white was a little quieter, but he was happy. But what I observed was a remarkable witness. Two young men who had fought each other for three hours were on their knees grasping hands in the middle of the field. A sense of real thrill came over me. I was happy about the outcome of the game, but I knew that life was a much bigger game and that what they were talking about was God and how he works in victory and defeat. Now then, here, in the book of Nehemiah, we read a remarkable lesson. And the lesson shows about someone who had the courage to care. I love the story of this football player who ran over to comfort 
a fellow Christian in defeat. He cared enough to see what was going on. And when you think about the people of God who had sinned against God's commandments, and because of it, God had scattered them and allowed them to be taken far away, 1,500 miles away from home and into captivity. And as the years, the long 70 years had passed by, people like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, true men of God, rose to the scene. Ezra had gone back to the land and the temple had been rebuilt. And Nehemiah, one of God's true men, would go back. He was a brave man. And even amongst a people that were idolaters and people who did not revere the name of God, he had been faithful and true to God. He had worked himself up into an important job. He was cupbearer to the king. More the, the cupbearer would taste any wine that was presented to the king to keep him from being assassinated. But it was more than just a secret service job. It was a job like that of a prime minister, a confidant, the most trusted of friends who was close to the king. And Nehemiah was just that close to the king, Artaxerxes. And yet Nehemiah one night had been walking on the walls of the city where he was in Babylon, and he heard the familiar sounds of his own native tongue. And he called to one of the people that were there, a brother Hebrew. And he said to him in Hebrew, what's happened back in Judah? And he told him what had happened. He told him that the walls of the city had been burned and torn to the ground, that they were desolate, that there were piles of rubbish and that the people of God that were back there were in great affliction. And if you take the trouble to read Nehemiah, and I hope you will, his informant tells him those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. And then he cared enough, Nehemiah cared enough to identify with this. I sat down and I wept. I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then listen to this prayer. This is one of the greatest prayers in the Bible. I was thinking this morning when we were praying together the Lord's Prayer, it almost follows that form. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant, his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed. What about America? What about America and all the blessings that we have received? And what about all these filthy houses of pornography that you see from Minnesota to Texas? What about the debauchery and the disgrace that floods over the television tube? 
It's time that someone confessed the sins of this country. God has blessed us, but God may see fit to correct us. He may lay the rod of correction hard to us. We do not confess our sins. He will not bless an evil, wicked people. He will confess a, He will bless a people that is righteous and that exalt and live by his name. This man, Nehemiah, though he was in a good position himself, identified himself with the sins of the people that were there, and he wept and he prayed to God. And he did more than just pray to the Lord about it. He sought to intervene. He sought to do something. Tomorrow night the missionaries come. And I've always heard it, and I've been here for 20 years or more. Someone says, are we going to have another missionary? Yes, we're going to have another missionary. And we need to listen to our missionaries. We need to be able to learn something of the difficulties that they pass through. We may not be able to go to Zaire or to some far-off place and serve ourselves, but we ought to have enough of the grace of God to inquire and to identify and to be involved with those who do. So Nehemiah, in the presence of the king, determines that he will bring up the plight of his people. He had prayed to God about it. And now, after the prayer, he will lay his neck on the line. And that day and time, everyone was supposed to be full of joy who stood around an oriental despot. But here comes one into the presence of the king whose face reflects sorrow. I can remember one time myself, and I won't call the name of the person because it embarrasses me to think about it, in literally the most important house in this land. And I was a guest, and a butler, a black man, in the uniform of a butler, served me in my room. And I noticed that his face, too, was sad. And when he started out of the room with the silver tray in his hand, I could tell that he wanted to speak to me about something, but he was afraid that it wouldn't be proper for him to do so. And so I made the inquiry. I said, is something wrong? And he tried to discreetly put it aside, and then he literally burst into tears. And he said, I'm on duty tonight but my wife is in the hospital with cancer, and the doctors have told me that it may be terminal. And he said, Reverend, Reverend, would you pray for her? And I said, yes, we'll both pray. You come back. And he came back, and we knelt down beside the bed, and we prayed together. Later that evening, I said to the lady of the house, who was greatly interested in the welfare of people throughout the land in mass, what had happened. And I'll never forget the sneer that came over her face. And she said, do you mean the servants are mentioning to the guests their problem? And I thought to my soul, how could you be so hard-hearted? Because a person is a servant doesn't mean they don't have problems and that they shouldn't be loved and cared for. Well, this king looked and saw the sadness that was in the face of Nehemiah, 
and asked him what was wrong, and he said, This is nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah bravely said to the king, I am sad of heart. I am sad because the house of my fathers has been desecrated and because the land is in waste and ruin and because the gates of my city are burned to the ground. Yes, I'm sad. And you'd be sad too if America was blasted and burned to the ground. You were in a far-off land. Here is a true man of God who is also a true patriot. And he knows the way to get right with God through the confession of sin that had brought them there and the way to get right with God to do something about it. And the king admired him for it. And the king said, what can I do? And he said, you can make me governor of Judah. That's what he said in effect. You can furnish me with letters so I can have safe conduct through the lands that I have to pass through. You can furnish me with the authority to get the timbers that I need to rebuild the walls and the gates of the city. And the king said, set me a time. And so he set him a time to leave. And later Nehemiah would come back to that land, but not before he had gone to carry out his task. He carried enough to inquire, he carried enough to identify, and he carried enough to intercede, and he carried enough to get involved. I love Robert E. Lee. And we have on our faculty George Adams, one of our deacons, who is a, a, a great scholar of Robert E. Lee. And one of the best books I ever read was written about Lee after the war, after the Civil War. For 40 of his 63 years, he was a soldier. He died at 63. And yet perhaps the most remarkable work that he did came after the war when he went to a tiny little school called Washington College. It was called Washington College because George Washington had granted a grant that made it possible for the school to get started in Lexington, Virginia. He had come to that school, little broken down Washington College, at a time when his name was in the press and all sorts of evil things had been spoken against him by crazy people like Secretary Stanton, who had been Secretary of the War. He came to that little Washington college, and do you know how many students they had? They had 40 students. Here was a man who had commanded hundreds of thousands of troops, and he came to a school with 40, 40 students. And he took that amazing mind of his, and he put it to work to make that pitiful little college into something great and good. He did an amazing thing. He saw that that school could grow, and so he put his big mind together and his big heart. But listen to what the writer says about him. One of the things that impressed Lee the most was his opportunity to lead people to a faith in Jesus Christ. Robert E. Lee's faith in Jesus Christ seems to have been the dominant thing behind all that he did. As the Confederacy's military might declined, the soldiers' re religious zeal increased. In 1863, a revival sw swept through the ranks of the Confederate troops. Prayer meetings flourished. 
Lee would frequently take part in these, and he, Lee would frequently take part in these, and he never failed to listen to the exhortations of one of the ragged rebel preachers. In both private and public worship, Lee was so ardent that some of his generals said he was more concerned about winning souls than battles, and they might have been right. Look at what else Lee, Lee's biographer said. I, Lee says himself, I'm quoting Robert E. Lee now, I have never cherished bitter or vindictive feelings, and I have never seen the day come that I could not pray for my enemy. Do you feel that way? Are you that good a Christian? That's unusual for a general, isn't it? It's unusual for anybody. In 1865, when he came to Lexington, he came more as a missionary than an educator. He never even used the term Christian education for the simple reason that it never occurred to him that any other kind of education was worth having. And yet he took care to affiliate with a college that was not controlled by a denomination. To him, faith in Christ was a freedom to be enjoyed and not a law to be enforced. And in this, he was a profound Protestant. I find it so hard to keep one poor sinner's heart in the right way, he used to say, that it seems presumptuous for me to be too hard on others. He had hardly arrived in town when he was elected to the vestry of the Episcopal Church. He made it known at once his Christian sentiments. And he said to the board of trustees at their first meeting of the college, I dread the thought that any student should go away from this college without becoming a sincere Christian. There's a man who went back to build something. He went back to build it because he identified, he got involved, and he left the great university as a result of it. And how does it apply to you and how does it apply to me? Just how much does our faith in Jesus Christ mean to us? Does it mean enough that we seek to witness to other people about him? Does it mean enough to use whatever opportunity we have in life to bring glory to his name? I hope it does, because we have so many young people who have not heard this story before. I want to tell it in closing because I think it's very important to illustrate this. I once heard a man who had been imprisoned in Romania who preached some sermons to himself when he was in solitary confinement. And that man told the story which I have never forgotten. He said that back in ages long ago there was a, a great king in Eastern Europe and next to his little country was a, another country. And that that country was controlled by a young prince who was very warlike, and he was always trying to pick a fight with his king. The king had been very patient with him because he remembered that when he had been a young man, he had done some foolish things too, and so he was patient. But then one time, the young king went too far, and the king had to give orders to his soldiers to go and to take him captive, and so they did. And they brought the young king, after they had destroyed his fighting capability, they brought him into the presence of the older king, whom he had provoked. The older king feigned great anger and wrath. He faked it. 
But he walked out in the presence of this young prince, and the young prince, scared to death, fell down at the feet of the king and began to plead with him not to put him to death because he just knew that he would have him put to death. And the old king said to him, You have been very foolish. You have provoked me again and again, and I should lop your head off, but I'm going to give you one chance. He said, Tomorrow morning, the drummer will play, and you will walk the length of our village square, and you will carry a silver bowl filled to the brim with wine, and beneath it will be a white cloth, and if you spill one drop of that wine, the executioner will be in back of you with his axe, and your head will be lopped off on the spot. The next morning, the old king had arranged for one side of the the street to boo and to hit and to make catcalls at the young prince. He had arranged for the other side to cheer and to praise him for what he had done. And the drummer came, and the crowds had assembled, and the procession, strange procession, started its way over the cobblestones. The white cloth had been placed in his hand in the silver bowl, and the man had filled it to the brim, and the young prince was seeking to walk, holding it as carefully as he could, watching it, and one side was booing and hissing and calling him names, and one side was cheering him and telling him that he had done the right thing, but he just watched carefully that bowl, and when he got to the end of the village square, He took it from his hand. He had not spilled a drop. And he fell down again at the feet of the king who was waiting for him. And the king said to him, What did you think about when the crowd was booing and hissing and calling you names? And the young prince said, I didn't think about anything except that cup that I was holding filled with wine and that not one drop of it should stain that white cloth. And the old king said, what did you think about it when the people were cheering you and singing your praises? The young prince said, I didn't hear anything they were saying. I was looking at the brim of that bowl and thinking about what would happen to me. The old king said to him, young man, you have a soul that almighty God has entrusted to you. And you are walking through life. And one day you will present your soul back to God. And there will be people that will hiss and boo and call you names. And there will be people that will cheer. But you keep your eyes on the soul that you bring back to God. And you keep yourself pure for Him. You can be kept pure one way. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. But Jesus Christ demands of us that we have the responsibility to live as those who have been forgiven. And that means that we are to walk through this life whether people boo us or jeer at us or curse us or whether people sing our praises and cheer us. That we are to be faithful faithful to him, and faithful to the finish of our day. Let us pray. 
Our Father, it's one thing to listen to a sermon. It's one thing to listen to great stories. But it's quite another thing to walk out of the church and live like we're supposed to live. And so we want to pray that you will take our will and make it thine. Let us no longer control our own wills, but let us seek to do your will, whatever it may be. Let Jesus really be Lord over our lives, so that a revival might come to our country by beginning in our minds and hearts and lives here. Add your blessings to each person here. May those who have not yet known Christ as Savior know that anyone willing to come unto him, he will in no wise cast out and accept that person now. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.